All right, Don, this is our first episode. Actually, well, it's our first episode post Thanksgiving. Did you have a good uh, good holiday weekend? Oh, uh, it was it was pretty good for the most part. Um I actually had a date. Oh, how'd it go? I went to to meet my date and they um I got to the address. It was just like a pond. Oh? Yeah, which I was like I, I like ponds and then I realized that um the address was actually like a log that was in the pond. That doesn't seem practical at all. No, well, it is if you're a catfish, which is what I got and what the date was. <laughs> how about that? Seg- how about that segue right there into this episode's theme? You got whizcast on the internet. Yes. Uh, yes. So we are talking about everyone's favorite fish. Uh, we have a very special guest who studied catfish in the past and has a pretty interesting story. I think you all are gonna like to hear about. But we're not just stopping at catfish uh, this uh, this week, are we, Don? We are not. And we are we are going into everyone's favorite puny little fish buddies. We've got Phoebus and Magikarp also on deck. I'm not gonna lie, I feel a little weird talking about Magikarp without Lucas. Yeah, it is sort of his special boy. I I, I got his blessing. Okay. To do the episode. We have been we have been so blessed. Yes. So without further uh, without further. I was going to try to make like a flopping joke, but I forgot what fish actually did. Uh, You're starting to flounder there a bit, eh? Got you and your puns, Don. All right, cue the music. Don, so for science news, one kind, one fun thing I found is that some researchers have recently found that alligators can actually regenerate their tails. This is something I did not know about. Yes. Uh, I mean, I apparently other people did not too because it was just it's, published. We're all excited. They're saying that ba- it's baby alligators, not like, you know, full-blown, not like that monster alligator that was videotaped on the golf course. Oh, that guy was sweet. But they say baby alligators can regenerate up to 18% of their uh, body length. I would imagine that's on the tail side is where they're generating. Yes. Occurring. Not just yes, any 18%. Yes, <laughs> Not just not they don't regenerate the head. Yes, so they can regenerate as much as nine inches of their tails. That's impressive. So the the thing that I can't seem to find though is if if because like you know other lizards can drop their tails a defense mechanism, right? Right. So I don't know if they're saying that alligators can also do this, or this is just if there's like an accident and like part of their tail gets gone. Yeah. I don't know. I thought that was a cool little interesting tidbit. Do you have any any science news for us? Um. Oh, trying to think if there's anything other than that because I thought heard about that and I thought that was neat. Off the top of my head, I really can't think of anything right now. Well, we're just kind of cruising right along, which I feel like I'm okay with light on the science news because I feel like we have a lot of Pokemon. Yeah, news. I think it's going to be – yeah, that's – we do have a lot of good stuff on that front. I thought you were going to say the episode itself is going to be pretty science-y it looks like, which is all – I mean we're going we're gonna to have a pretty deep episode I think. Yeah. But Pokemon news first. Did you see that Kadabra is back in the trading card game? Yes, I actually saw an article about that today on my lunch break. Yes, it is. I think it's been... It's been like 20 years. 20 years? Yeah, since since Kadabra was printed. And for the most part, like, they haven't really printed Abra. Because there's no point to it. Like, I mean, he popped up every now and then. But Alakazam would pop up because they did that little workaround where you could... Where Alakazam or the tier three Pokemon could be quote unquote basic Pokemon. Yes. But essentially, a long time ago, back in the early days of Pokemon in the trading card game, Nintendo got sued by a magician. Yuri Geller. Yes, Yuri Geller. Because I believe it was, I think it was the Japanese tra- or name for... It was like Yurigular. It was did sound a lot like his name and his... No, his thing was Bending Spoons um, and... That was cadets, as you know, of the Kadabra and Nabra line. They are big fans of the spoons. So he was essentially saying that they were ripping off of his likeness and exploiting him. And as the lawsuit was going through, they were not allowed to print Kadabra cards anymore. And I guess it was like last week, he just dropped the lawsuit and was like, or, and it was just like, go nuts. Yeah, I saw he like embraced all the Kadabra. He had a thing with himself and like a bunch of old Kadabra merch, I think. I think that's some exciting news for, for the card players out there. All those old Kadabra. I think the last Kadabra card printed was in Skyrim. I have I have a dark Kadabra still. I'm not sure when that one oh, came out. That was, 
That was uh, the Team Rocket one, which was, I think it was the first set after Fossil. Okay, that sounds about right. I mean, they're definitely an older card. But that's that's yeah. the TCG news. Um, Pogo news. We got a new Mega one because Mega Obama Snow's in the game. I like Mega Obama Snow. I like it a he lot. He looks awesome. Yeah. And they are, uh, they just released the Kalos mods that we talked about last time. So I've already caught almost all of the ones that were released except for Froki, but they're popping up everywhere. I saw a Finnegan. I haven't seen a Froki yet. I have seen it on the map, but I wasn't able to get it. Got but it. I've caught a lot of Finnegan, and I'm also crushing my quest for 40 before December because I want the Gyarados hat. Oh, that's what you get if you're a cool guy? If you're a cool guy, you need 5 million experience to, to hit 40. And as of last Tuesday, I was at 1.8 million. And as of today, I'm at 3.5 million. Dang. So I've been hitting it hard, but I really want that stupid hat. But such is life. I think that these, I'm a little, I'm curious because now that we're up to Kalos, we've only got two cities left or two generations left to bring into Pokemon Go, you know? Yeah. Like, we're almost caught up all the way. So I'm curious to see how the game develops, how if they slow down the releases of, of ones, but I guess that's just something we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, um, I feel like we get a lot, they could get a lot of events out of it, too. With all the Megas, yeah, they'll cycle for a while. They just need to make the Megas more relevant Yeah. than just being in raids. They, I have, I, I went into a raid against an Esper where someone threw a Mega Gengar at it, and it was tragic for that esper oh he did his best it was like five seconds it was really sad and he tried again he tried we can respect he tried real hard he was that esper was a try hard tried so hard and got so far (laughs) he got nowhere and then i think those were that was that was the big pogo news sad to tell you don we don't have pokemon snap update tragedy I really, I really want it. We'll, we'll get it someday. Will we? I'm excited for you to get it, but that's a story that'll have to wait for another time. I've got my N64 Pokemon Snap to hold me over for now. That's fair. I can respect that. But I, I, the only other bit of news that I have is that the Players Cup, the next, the, the regional finals. I believe so. Yeah, re- regional finals are this weekend. That sounds right. So all the people that you played last time are going to be on stream. So I'm I'm I always like watching these uh, because I feel like I learn a lot more <laughs> watching them play than than me bumbling through my own mistakes. Honestly, same. <laughs> I think that was all the news I had. Did you have any po- Pokemon stuff? Um, not not really. I think that covers all the stuff I had. Don, I think that about does it for the actual Pokemon news. So why don't we just jump right in with our guest? Yeah, let's do it. All right, everyone. So we have a very special guest uh, joining us today. Uh, We have Dr. John Friel. And I think we're going to get a real kick out of this episode. John has done some very interesting work. So we're just going to start. John, we want to learn a little bit about you and your work. Uh, so just give us a quick, you know, rundown about your background, your, your where you are now, and just what you're all tied up in. Sure. So professionally, I'm trained as an ichthyologist. That's someone who studies fish. So I've been working on fish going on several decades now. Uh, did a PhD on a particular group of catfishes found in South America called banjo catfishes. After that, did a postdoc where I worked on trigger fishes and puffer fishes. And then I got a job at Cornell University where I curated the university's fish, amphibian, and reptile collections for about 16 years and continued to do research on fishes. I switched to African catfishes for a while. And for the past five years, I've been at the University of Alabama and I'm the director for the Alabama Museum of Natural History, which is on campus here in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Awesome. And I have to, uh, just out of curiosity, what drew you to catfish for, for a lot of your work? So uh, catfish is, to me, a lot of people don't realize how diverse they are. And I, I was always really into diversity. And uh, I mentioned I've been in other groups of diverse fishes. I originally wanted to work with cichlid fishes, which are incredibly diverse in tropical river systems, uh, and some of the Great Lakes of Africa. 
but I couldn't find anyone at the time I was looking for graduate programs that was taking students. Uh, but I did apply to a couple of labs that studied catfishes and had the opportunity to visit a lab where uh, my future advisor gave me a jar of unsorted catfishes he'd collected in the Amazon. And just picking through those and seeing how diverse the morphology was, how strange they looked, I was hooked. Um, and I decided at that point that I, I could work on catfishes. And uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe uh, your a lot of your research centered on uh, the systematics and the taxonomy of correct. My, my PhD was specifically on a group called banjo catfishes, which which are awesome. Yeah, they they actually are. They're, they're incredible fishes. And they get their name from kind of their weird shape that they have. They almost look like a banjo with a big flattened head and kind of a skinny body. So imagine looking down on a banjo. That kind of is there. But they don't play music, right? Um, they are. They do make sounds. Oh, they actually okay. make um, sounds by rubbing their uh, pectoral spines. They oh. make a creaking sound. And uh, one of the things I discovered in them is that if you handle them enough, they don't do it initially, but uh, if you annoy them enough, they will start making a racket. And uh, this is actually... <laughs> happens in a lot of groups of catfishes. And actually some do it really readily. Other groups um, only do it sometimes. Some only do it um, with one side, some do it with both. So there's some interesting um, kind of evolutionary history behind the sound making. And it's not really clear to us why they make the sounds, but it may be like a rattlesnake rattle because a lot of these catfishes also have um, spines which can do mechanical damage if they come up against a predator or actually sometimes have venom associated with them as well. I picked up, you said that the, the banjo catfish has, has venom. Um, they do. Many catfishes do. It's not uh, unique to them. I, I did not know that. I've unfortunately learned yes. that many times. If you're a fisherman and you ever catch catfish, you, 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 you find that out pretty quickly. And, and they vary in how painful they are. Um, some are just kind of, they just will cut you or poke you, but other ones clearly have a venom that gets in the wound and will you know, be like a bee sting or some of them. They're actually, on a rare occasions, there have been fatalities associated with some marine catfishes that have a really potent venom. Wow. And and how, what do they use to get the venom into? Is it is it from the skin? Is it like, do they bite you? My understanding of it, and it's not completely known at all catfishes, but they typically have these little vesicles that are in the skin and it overlays the spine, which has some kind of often sharp edges on it, sometimes little little teeth or dentitions. And when, if you were to come in contact with that or poked you, the bony part would poke you and in the process would kind of rupture the skin that's covering it. And then the, the venom oozes out into the wound it's made in you. And that's how the venom gets into you. It's not quite like a hypodermic needle, like a bee stinger or wasp stinger would be. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. I've read that catfish have a great, like one of the largest ranges of size in a fish. Is that true? Um, I, it, it's quite potentially true. I mean, they range from some which are adults at well under an inch up to, I think, I think the largest one, there's, there's debate what the largest is. There's the longest, which uh, might be one of the um, European species, the Wells catfish. And then there's like the heaviest, which is this Mekong giant catfish. And then there's lots in between. So if I were to ask you, what is a catfish? What 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 makes them unique? Yeah. What, how would you describe um, it? There's a famous quote from a, a famous biologist, Archie Carr, who said, any damn fool knows a catfish. And <laughs> that's generally true. But there are things, if I showed you some really bizarre catfishes, you might not recognize them as catfishes. But in general, uh, most of them have barbels. So that's a feature that may come up in our discussion of some of the Pokemon fishes later on. But uh, that's typically, most of them have multiple pairs, although the number will vary between groups. Um, the vast majority of them do have, as I mentioned, um, pectoral and dorsal spines. Uh, again, they have been secondary lost in a few groups. And then there's a bunch of internal features that are probably beyond kind of the subject in detail we want to get into today. But there are a whole suite of kind of morphological features which they share. And they have been incredibly successful. They occur on all continents. Um, they're eating fossils from Antarctica. In addition to like the morphological diversity of cafes, they're incredibly diverse in their ecologies, um, especially the things that they eat. Well, the vast majority of catfishes, you know, they're often, people poke fun of them as being bottom feeders, but there are a lot of catfishes that have very specialized diets, including um, some that feed on mucus and then some that even feed exclusively on blood, like kandaroos, uh, which feed on the blood. Wait, they eat blood? Yes. They had they, they, their normal 
The way they feed is they swim into the gill cavities of much bigger fish and bite the gill filaments and, and cause the blood to leak out. And much like a vampire bat, they take a big blood meal and they drop off and digest that blood meal and then the cycle repeats. So they are completely specialized to feed on the blood of other fishes. That sounds horrific for the other fish. Yeah, I mean, again, I, you know, it's, it depends on how, how common they are. Um, and I, I've seen an aquarium where people have put in a small goldfish and if they have multiple uh, individuals of these parasitic catfishes, they can basically kill a small fish by drawing too much blood off of it. But in general, it's kind of like a ticker or a flea. It's an annoyance to the big fish, but typically isn't going to kill them. Okay. Hey, Don, you said you, you'd heard about that before? The kangaroo? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they're... um. There's some infamous stories about them. Yeah. So the, the, what you're probably getting to is the fact that, um, you know, I, I mentioned kangaroos normally feed on blood, but they've kind of become infamous for another uh, claim is that they occasionally get stuck in the urethra of humans. And the idea is that these fishes normally swim into the gill cavities to the operculum of a fish. So that's a little opening the side of the head where there's water currents coming off the fish. Uh, the fish mistake these if someone was urinating, for example, in the Amazon River, one of these fishes might mistake that urine stream, swim up it all the way into someone's urethra. And once they're in there, these fish have little hooks on their purple that they can lodge in place. And there are basically old news stories, some historical accounts, and a few kind of claimed of video footage of surgeries removing these. But it's still highly debated by experts. Uh, they're, you know, While it seems... Physically possible, it seems, seems incredibly unlikely to actually happen, uh, if at all, very frequently. See, I'd heard those stories, did not realize it was a catfish, and my heart was stopping because it sounded like you were saying it was real, and then you came back in at the end and were like, eh, kind of debated. So It's still debated. There, You can go to YouTube, and there are videos, and you know there are medical doctors that claim they have removed them, but... There's just some details uh, that don't match up, the kind of the size of the fish. Uh, the claim I saw, this fish swam up someone's urine stream out of the water into their urethra. So that, to me, seems a little far-fetched. But these, these catfish, some of them are small enough that it's completely plausible. Although, again, it, it's like a one in a million chance. I think you have a better chance of winning the lottery than uh, if you were urinating in the Amazon and having a candiru actually get stuck in your urethra. So you say one in a million. Uh, those odds are still too too big for me. So I'm gonna what I'm taking away from this conversation is I'm still not going to urinate in the Amazon, even though I will probably never see the Amazon in my life. Again, better safe than sorry. Yeah, I will I will err on the side of caution with this one. Oh, but so your your work the with the systematics, why is that work important? What sort of impact does that have on the world and in our understanding and organization of the world? Sure. Um, I mean, as I've gotten older, I've been much more interested in conservation, uh, particularly of freshwater fishes. And you really can't conserve something unless you understand what you've got. And one of the issues, particularly with uh, many tropical river systems, is that we do not fully understand all the species that live there. And we're constantly describing every year there are hundreds of new catfish described, well over 100, depending on the group and the year. Um, and I know, for example, the groups that I'm familiar with, I have dozens of undescribed species. And I'm, I'm kind of the bottleneck in getting those descriptions out, but that's the case in almost every single group of catfishes that I'm aware of. And this is true for other groups of fishes as well. Uh, so while people get really excited when someone describes a new primate or maybe a new bird, uh, it's happening constantly uh, in catfishes. Uh, almost every scientific journal, every new issue that comes out, there's often a new description of a catfish in it. And and so cataloging all these new uh, catfish and animals and and fish and everything, how how does that play into conservation? What do, what can we then take from having that info? Well, we learn something not only what the species are, but where they are. So. Not so much of my work on banjo catfishes, but research I did when I started working in Africa was much more relevant to conservation because some of the fishes I studied live in rapids uh, in Africa and actually have the ability to hold on to rocks. So they're like really fast flowing waters. And these same areas tend to be where people like to put dams in. Uh, so I've been involved in a couple of surveys of 
dam sites potentially to document what's there. So we know, and, and, and once in a while, they, you know, unfortunately pick sites where they maybe the only site where a particular fish is found. For people that study freshwater systems, dams uh, for hydropower or for water purposes have a big impact on the fish fauna. So that's a case where actually knowing what fishes are there and when, when they're there, and, and they may be exclusively in these rapids. So that's a really good example I can think of where the knowledge I've gained about what species are there potentially has impacts on conservation decisions. No, I can, I can absolutely see how that would be important to know, you know what's there when, when you're dealing with it. This covers a lot of my questions. Don, did you have any questions for John? Um, I had a few catfish questions, but I was going to save them until we get to the uh, catfish Pokemon segment because they kind of tie in. Okay, cool. Well, if that's the case, let's just kind of jump right into the into the Pokemon. We've picked out four Pokemon uh, to talk about. They're not all catfish because we don't have four catfish Pokemon, but... So we can dream. <laughs> we, can, we can dream. Someday we'll get more catfish. Uh, but I figured we could really lean on John and some of his knowledge on some of our other uh, our other fish Pokemon. But to start, uh, we are going to pick this right on up with Barboach, which to me, when you look at the name, is obviously a combination of the words Barbel, John, which you talked about earlier, and Loach, which is a type of fish. Wait, real quick. Where do you stand on the Barbel Barbell pronunciation? I, if I think about it, I'll probably say it two different ways. I would just say Barbel. I... Yeah, I like I like barbel. It sounds good, like coming out of my mouth. Well, barbell makes me think of like weightlifting. Exactly. Yeah, I, I think I would agree. And that. these aren't some like really muscular. These aren't like some jacked fish. Like they're not lifting weights. <laughs> they're kind of snaky. Yeah, here we are. Okay, so uh, to start off with the the first part of that name, barbel, John, could you 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 kind of talked about it in the last segment, but could you elaborate a little bit on what exactly? the barbels are for sure so barbels in general and barbels are found not only in catfish and loaches um, many other groups of fishes and in almost all cases they're thought to be sensory structures so you might think of these as a little antenna and often they're covered both with taste buds and chemoreceptors in some cases electroreceptors so these are basically feelers that these fishes that have barbels can use them to most often detect prey items. So they might be probing around mm. in the substrate. They might be feeling around underneath rocks. But the idea is that they kind of are sensory structures. So they kind of extend the uh, the field in which this animal can sense its environment. And and would these help it, especially in like really murky water? Certainly, yeah. Which is, is interesting because when you look at, I don't know how much you looked into like the Pokedex entries in the game, but almost every single generation that Barboach has been in, it explicitly states that its whiskers make a, basically it's radar system and they use it hmm. for hunting prey. It says that it'll bury down in the mud uh, with the little barbels poking out to detect the prey. Does does that sound accurate? That, that's, that it sounds feasible. Like I said, depending on the species, um, some of them, they almost always have touch receptors, but they, depending on the group, they often have taste buds uh, and they may also have electroreceptors. Uh, a lot of animals, just by moving, anytime you have muscular action, you generate a really weak electric field. And some animals have electroreceptors on their barbels. So, and, and again, they, they're kind of multi-purpose. They can taste with them, they can touch with them, and they can detect this electric sense that we really don't have an ability to appreciate. Yeah. All right, I might jump in real quick there with a question because I was that actually tied into one of the questions I had. So you were just talking about the electric sense, and there's one move that um, Barboach and its evolution that we'll talk about in a minute both get that people have always wondered about. That's a, There's a move called Spark, which surprised people because it's an electric move that they didn't expect from the fish. Yeah, because bar, Barboach is a, wa it's a water ground type, so it's... You know, it's very strange. You don't think about it, but there are... Yes. There is an electric catfish, yeah. right? Yeah. In the real world, uh, speed, yeah, there's, there's a whole there's a whole family of electric catfishes, um, and there are multiple species. So, so yeah, so it is justified. Uh, what what species is that? So, there, I know them. So, electric catfishes are catfishes in the family Malapteridae. So, it's a group that's exclusively in Africa. Um, and they're... I'm trying to off the top of my head. I think there's a little over a dozen species... They used to be all thought to be one species, but there have been 
scientists that have gone through and looked at the taxonomy of them and realized there are multiple species. Um, the thing I like about electric catfish is um, some some Egyptian hieroglyphs you'll actually see electric catfishes depicted because they occur naturally in the wild uh, in the excuse me, the Nile River. I love matching up when I see things like that in historical pieces of art. So it's kind of a, a neat thing that I like about the electric catfishes. But they can also put out depending on the species, some of them several hundred volts, and uh, I have been shocked by them, and it is not pleasant. I, I would imagine not. They are. I just looked them up. Some of them have a nice little sort of pattern to them. They're a good-looking little fish. Very, very true. Very true. Well, the the last little bit that I wanted to touch on with barboach is the other prominent thing that comes up in its dex dex entries is how slimy it is, and and it just kind of like mucousy membrane it has and the deck says that it it's used to basically escape predators and and slip away but from what i could see is that there is i think it was with the pond loach or weather loach um they have a, a mucus membrane that lets them basically stay moist outside of water correct um mucus has multiple multiple functions so and a lot of you've, you've touched on. So the main function of mucus it is kind of a, a protective barrier for the fishes. It protects them from abrasion while they're in the water and also out. Um, and it prevents infection from pathogens. It lubricates the, the moving uh, across surfaces. So all those things are quite possible. And, and again, it varies. There are some fish which are just particularly slimy. I'm gonna, if you know what a hagfish is. Yes. Uh, it's a deep river. And they're infamous. You can put one in a bucket and it turns into just a bucket of goo. Oh, gross. There's some great, there's actually, I've seen pictures and I think there might be a video if, of, of a car crash. Somebody was transporting. Oh, I know what you're talking about. Hagfishes on a highway and they had an accident and all these catfishes were spilled out. And it literally looks like you know, a Ghostbuster scene from on a highway with all the slime just everywhere produced by these fish. Oh, no. That sounds horrible. I wonder how, how do you get the mucus off? Because it's for, I've seen the pictures and it it seems like it reacts with water and just gets worse. So it depends. Some some fishes, I don't know. I've never myself personally handled live hagfish. That's what I was going to ask. Okay. I have handled other fishes which are really slimy. And sometimes it just dries on your hands. I mean, in fact... Mucus is just a, it's like a, a polysaccharide that combines with water. So it starts off in a dry state. It gets, when it gets water hits it, it becomes a sticky substance. And then if you dehydrate it, it goes back into this dry thing. And, and there are, in addition to fishes that we have things locally here, and you may have them where you are, called slimy salamanders. And they have a really sticky mucus that after you're handling them, it's just like, you know, getting glue on your hands. I don't, I don't want any part of that. I think they're neat. <laughs> Even with the slime. <laughs> well, we are different people, Don. Uh, well, I, I think that about covers everything I had on Barboach. So let's just jump in with the star of the episode for you, John, which would be uh, Whizcash. Okay. Uh, so Whizcash is undeniably a catfish. And we've actually talked a little bit about Whizcash in a, or the team has talked about Whizcash in a previous episode um, because of its mythological yes. ties. And uh, they actually did a very good job on the, the yokai episode. If people want to go back and give that a listen, uh, that kind of more ties into the idea of in the deck centuries, Whizcash is say it says Whizcash causes earthquakes, which catfish do not do. I feel very comfortable saying catfish do not cause earthquakes. So one of the things that the, the decks really harps on with Whizcash is it says it's very aggressive. It says it's very territorial and very aggressive. Mm -hmm. Are catfish known to be aggressive and territorial? Some are. So again, this one is probably closer to the truth, given um, the kind of catfish Whizcash probably is. He's thought to be a silurid catfish. And uh, silurid catfishes include, I mentioned one of the largest, the European Wells catfish. And these have been documented to eat pigeons. Uh, there are videos of them, pigeons, pigeons feeding along like the edge of a, a river or lake and these big catfishes are just basically beaching themselves and grabbing a pigeon and dragging it back in the water so i think that qualifies as being an aggressive catfish i did not know that that fish ate birds <laughs> that kind of unsettles me don you're you're spending a lot more time with fish did you know this oh yeah i've seen i've seen bass eat baby ducks before personally yeah that's that's really common 
Oh no, this is like a glass shattering moment for me. <laughs> I have a person I trust told me they once saw a tarpon eat a seagull, but I haven't witnessed anything along that, but I believe it. That's this is horrifying. That's if I mean most things that you know, tip fit, most fish follow, swallow their prey whole, so if it can fit in the mouth, um, and there are actually fishes that can swallow things that are bigger than themselves. Uh, there's some great images of some. Uh, well, this also, that kind of ties a little bit into the other point I wanted to hit on Whizcash, which is in one entry, the phrase is, if it is alive, Whizcash will eat it. <laughs> and based on what you just told me, that sounds pretty accurate. Yeah. The, the vast majority of catfishes I've, I'm familiar with um, are pretty omnivorous. They will eat almost everything. There are a few that are finicky, but um, by and large, they will eat anything. And again, if it fits in its mouth, it's generally going to eat it. So uh, I think that's probably true. I know there's a video or pictures a while back. Have you seen the one? I think it was a flathead that was trying to eat a basketball. Yes, I've seen those, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, I, I can see that not going well for that catfish. <laughs> Uh, he, he tried his best. <laughs> it's an A for effort, A for effort. One question that I wanted to make sure I asked you, John, is that Whizcash and Barboach are in the games. They are water types and they're also ground types. And so I wanted to get get your opinion on the ground portion of it. And so what sort of, you said they were bottom feeders, but do they, are catfish, like, are they hiding in the ground? Like what sort of relation do they have with uh, the ground in ponds and lakes and all and rivers. Again, there's a lot of variation depending if you talk about all catfishes, but I'd say the, the majority of them tend to be what we call benthic. So they generally are associated with the bottom. Uh, some of them will rest on the bottom, some will swim along the bottom and occasionally come up to the surface or in between. There are a few pelagic, what we call pelagic things, which swim all the time, but the vast majority, including the kind of catfish that wishcash is, are probably primarily benthic, kind of resting on the bottom. For some uh, pro catfish PR, because I've heard people say this before, and as far as I know, it's not um, real in any case, but you're the expert. Um, I feel like there's an urban legend about catfish barbels being able to sting you. Are there any that actually can do that, or is that just totally a myth? That's a complete fallacy, and I don't don't know where that comes from. Um, The bar, Like I said, the barbels of... All catfish, none of them have any type of way to injure you. Um, only way catfish, catfish can bite you, some catfish actually have pretty significant dentition, and, and if they bit you, you would know it. Um, the most common injury is due to their pectoral and dorsal spines, which often have venom. And then the third way, I would say, is the ones that are electric and can shock you. So those are kind of their arsenal of weapons, but the barbels are definitely not part of that. All right, cool. I just wanted to have that officially on the podcast because i've heard people say that like my entire life it's definitely a pervasive myth yeah it's a case where i have no idea what the basis for that is or why it would even be perpetuated but i've heard that as well it's kind of it it just seems like one of those things that like someone said and someone's like yeah that sounds right and it just keeps getting repeated you know which is unfortunate but here we go you've heard it here first it's false well we'll keep sliding don i think you're gonna you're gonna lead the the next one. All right. Um. So our next our next fella up is the uh, the humble Feebass, which is one of those those Pokemon that the game really likes just making fun of. <laughs> That's putting it lightly. Yeah. Some of these Pokedex entries. Um. There's one from that says ridiculed for its shabby appearance. It is ignored by researchers. It lives in ponds filled with leaves. It is the shabbiest Pokemon of all. Oh. Um. They basically every every Pokedex just talks about how shabby and ugly it is. But then they do mention how hardy it is and how it can live in almost any body of water. So it's got durability, I guess, going for it. Now, Don and I were debating before we started. I, I was drawing from the name with Feebas seeing a bass correlation. Don was... I sort of changed my opinion on it after I thought about it. Do you have thoughts on this bass or not bass? Looking at it, and then the other thing I'll point out to I, I had sent you um, a kind of a, a pseudo-scientific publication I'd come across uh, where... Some scientists went through and actually went through the whole Pokemon universe and tried to classify all the fishes. And they came to the same conclusion. Uh, they considered that uh, Feebas was based on a largemouth bass. Okay, and I was... was the most likely. Yeah. Now, one thing, so, so Don talked about in the decks, it says that it can live pretty much anywhere. 
One thing that it does say, it, it has a it has a word that kind of catches my eye. It says it can live in polluted streams and lakes. Is that something that bass can do? They have some tolerance. I mean, I think I don't think they're the most extreme uh, example of fish that can live in those. But I've seen. I mean, most bodies of water have some degree of pollution in them, unfortunately. And uh, largemouth bass turn up in some of those. So I think it's within the realm of possibility. Uh, I think the other the other bit that I wanted to touch on, it seems to be a common theme with these fish, Don, but it, it does also say that Phoebus will eat anything. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, in my experience with, I've done a lot of fishing for largemouth bass in my time. Um, and in my experience, they will eat pretty much anything that's moving in some things that aren't. Aren't you trying to catch a bass in every state? Yes, that is a quest of mine. You need to come. So there's actually, you know, a lot of people don't realize, you know, you know, there are a lot of species. I think there's over 13 described species now in the genus that the largemouth bass is in. And we have multiple species in Alabama. There's like what they call a red eye slam. So the red eye is a really cool bass. Yeah. And there are people that come to Alabama specifically. All Almost every river basin has its own endemic form. So people come to Alabama specifically to catch um, relatives of largemouth bass, some of them which have this red eye. So they have this, this contest called a red eye slam that is uh, becoming quite popular with fishermen. I'll have to. That's got to be on my list. That is one I still haven't caught. And they are really, really beautiful little bass. As you complete your uh, animal crossing of life <laughs> yes. of bass. Don, picked, Don mentioned in the Dex entry something that really uh, gave me pause which is it says that Phoebus was essentially so ugly that researchers ignored it. And I can't think of a greater dereliction of duty as a researcher than not studying something because of its appearance. I mean, boring stuff gets less funding. <laughs> but I wanted to ask you as a researcher, if you had thoughts about the researchers in the game that would see this fish and be like, you're ugly. We don't have time for you. Yeah. I mean, there are true. I mean, I think I, I'm actually, I find kind of ugly fishes or kind of fishes that some people think are ugly, really interesting, but there are people that really focus on really colorful, flashy uh, fishes. We have, I'm, I'm really active on Twitter and uh, we have these little kind of inside wars about, uh, what fish are ugly? What fish are cute? We have we roast different fishes. Um, it, it, it's really amazing just seeing and you know people are drawn to flashy, colorful fish, particularly marine reef fishes. I think they get a lot more attention because they're just these brightly colored ones. Uh, but I really, I mean, I'm much more into catfishes because some of them are kind of really bizarre, alien-looking, uh, like deep sea angler fishes, uh, things like that. I just find so interesting because they just have such interesting morphology. Some of them. You know, if I showed you a picture, you might think, or an illustration, you might think it was a Pokemon, not realizing it's actually a real living species on, that shares the earth with us because they're just so strange looking in their morphology, uh, how they live. Um, so I, I have a soft spot for what most people would call ugly fish. So I'm not turned off, but there are people that are, I think are fish snobs and uh, really kind of uh, want to focus on, you know, the kind of overall aesthetic that the general populace might think of, you know, things that are good looking fish. And I would be remiss if we talked about Phoebus and didn't, I, and didn't mention um, it's, it, it kind of goes hand in hand. Uh, it, and this is more of a cultural than a science tie. Uh, but it is very clear that the harping on how ugly Phoebus is, is essentially the story of the ugly duckling, uh, by Hans Christian Andersen, because it's just, again, it the game goes hard on Phoebus. It eventually evolves into this absolutely, like, stunningly beautiful Pokemon. They say inspires artwork and all these things. I tend to think that maybe if those researchers had spent a little bit more time with Phoebus, they would have known that these two were connected beforehand. But that's not my failures. That's theirs. You know, a lot of fishes, particularly a lot of marine fishes, have incredible transformations. Uh, and sometimes uh, there have actually been species of fish, particularly deep sea ones, where the juvenile form has been described as one species and the adults, the males and females, have been described as separate species. So they've been described three times. And it turns out now with DNA evidence, people have been able to demonstrate they're all the same species. They're just One's a juvenile, and then one's an adult female, and one's an adult male. That they can look that different uh, within a single species. I, mean, I worked at a, a fish store for a while in high school, 
And um, there were several occasions people would bring back a fish after eight months, <laughs> very upset about that the fact that their like emperor angel no longer has cool swirls on it. Yeah. Well, the 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 second star of the show, uh, which is Magikarp. And Don, I've already said that I feel very bad that Lucas is not here to talk about his favorite boy. He does love Magikarp. But Magikarp, I mean, I'm not feeling like I'm taking too big of a leap here with carp being in the name. So we have carpfish, uh, which native to Europe and Asia, but they're introduced, been introduced into environments all over the world. I think I saw you were talking about the catfish in Egypt uh, in, in the hieroglyphics. I was seeing that uh, carp actually are some of the earliest domesticated and, and farmed fish. Carp does constitute a massive family of fish, right? Yeah, so it's it's much like catfishes. Um, you know, catfish are, I think, now over 35 different families. Um, carp and minnows are the same way. They are an incredibly diverse group of fishes in fresh waters, um, particularly in tropical areas. And, you know, it's, it's used kind of generically. Most of the bigger carp tend to be the bigger forms. This is a, probably a case where, much like the much maligned Phoebus, I probably have maligned you know, the common carp, because it's one of these things that it gets introduced everywhere. Um, it's, it's not prized, at least in North America, as a food fish, although it is prized in Asia as a food fish. And uh, I've always seen it, you know, people refer to it as a trash fish, um, something that they just catch and you know, leave on the bank, um, which is unfortunate, but I think it's got that reputation. So I, I'm probably guilty of, if I had, if you had to ask me to name it a trash fish, I probably would have picked the common carp. I know there's a very robust, um, it's it's really interesting to me as a person that enjoys fish and also a lot of recreational fishing. There's a really robust carp sport fishing scene in uh, England. Unlike in North America, it's a different situation with carp in Europe where they're actually a prized fisheries. I think here, um, your average bass fisherman, fisherman turns up their nose if you say you want to go fish for carp. But uh, that's the complete opposite in Europe where, you know, People specialize, um, you know, so when I see someone holding up like a, a prize carp, I can tell they're not in the U.S. They're almost certainly in Europe. <laughs> <laughs> now, much like Phoebus, Magikarp also gets crushed in in its in the game, in its deck entries. Uh, just a couple quick highlights, uh, if I can pull it up. We have, it is, Magikarp is a pathetic excuse for a Pokemon. Uh, it is an underpowered, pathetic Pokemon. It is virtually worthless. My favorite one is when um it talks about how it's pathetic and it's so capable of only flopping and splashing that it prompted scientists to investigate it for being so bad. It was so bad they had to know. But I will highlight the two things that it says that it is good at. Uh, one is it says that it is exceptionally fertile which is that is that true of carp it, de it definitely is yeah i mean you can start off you've had a pair of adult carp that reproduce they could very quickly um, build up a large population uh the other bit that they say is much like phoebus and they also mentioned that they are hardy and can live uh in lots of different environments especially polluted areas you know again with the pollutant stuff is that accurate that carp probably um uh, fit that description of being able to survive in kind of degraded waters. Um, they, unlike the, the bass, they tend to be a lot more vegetation. Um, they're omnivorous, but they will eat um, a lot of plants. So often waters that are kind of, have lots of kind of runoff nutrients, have kind of a lot of problems with algae growth and, and, and plant growth. And these are things which the carp actually sees as, you know, free food. Um, so I think they, they do really well in those kind of habitats. So I think, again, there's some truth to this description. Yeah. I think, Don, I think we might have a first for the show, which is I think we have our first example of a real life animal actually outdoing a Pokemon. Yeah. Oh, I'm proud of I'm proud of the carp. Even there's the um is it the silver carp that are the ones that saw the videos of them jumping yes. in uh a... Yeah, so that's the one you're familiar with now. So that's an introduced species in the US where um You'll see videos when they're they get in such numbers and they have this weird behavior where they leap out of the water when they're startled. So you'll see someone in a boat zipping along a river uh, that's full of these silver carp and they jump out of the water like little missiles and people get hit with them. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's a related carp species. Yeah. And it's I think I saw that they can jump up to like 10 feet. Uh, potentially. I mean, some of these videos, when they up to speed, they can. 
I don't know if they can get 10 feet off the water. They can definitely get about three or four feet off the water, but they can definitely travel more than 10 feet before they would go back in the water. Now, the last bit I have on Magikarp, uh, John, you've, you, you, you have, you have an interest in sort of the mythological ties with stuff. Do you happen to know anything about Carp's uh, mythology in China? I am kind of, I will admit, I'm a little bit ignorant on the uh, history of carp. I mean, like I said, I know they've been domesticated. So things like um, koi fish, which a lot of people think of, those are just domesticated carp that have been selected for their colors, the patterns. Um, and then we have related you know, the fishes like goldfish, which are a type of um, um, carp, which again have hundreds of years of selection have produced a lot of the distinctive breeds that you see in goldfishes. So um, there's been a long history of people um, raising carps, not only for food, but also for pets and for aesthetic reasons. And they found these things visually pleasing and selected for them to have particular traits that they thought were beautiful. Mm -hmm. So one of the bits of symbolism tied to carp is they, they are, they can be a sign of strength or and perseverance, especially when you think of in parts of China where the carp are jumping over waterfalls. There's uh, especially there's lore tied to a specific waterfall called the Dragon Gate on the Yellow River. It with it it says that if a carp is able to jump the Dragon Gate, uh-huh. it will turn into a dragon. And so this, to me, has the direct tie in the game because Magikarp in order to get it to the point where it can evolve into Gyarados, which while it's not a dragon type, it's basically a dragon. In order to get to the point that that you can get a Gyarados from a Magikarp, you have to really persevere as a trainer because it is so... I, I, I said that the game was harsh on it, but that, that thing is pretty, pretty bad to fight with in the game. And so getting it to the point where it can evolve into Gyarados does take perseverance as a trainer more perseverance than i had as an eight-year-old playing this game when it first came out so i just thought that that was a nice little a nice little mythological tie-in at the end with with carp and and our favorite little fish well on that note i think let's let's just slide on to the uh to the wrap-up don yeah let's do it well actually one more quick question um sorry this is the one i try to ask it's the one i try to ask every guest Okay, if there was any, um, we'll even say it's a catfish since it's your main area. Um, if there was one catfish that you'd like to see added as a Pokemon, what would uh, what would your pick be? Ooh. Again, I, I probably would think the electric catfish, just because again, it has probably one of the most amazing superpowers, and it looks it looks unassuming, but I think it would be kind of something. Yeah, it's not a very threatening looking fish for sure. Yeah, I mean, because it has that electric power, you know, what's interesting about it, it's reduced all its other defenses. So I mentioned most catfishes have these bony spines that have venom associated with them. Electric catfish don't. They have, through the course of evolution, they've lost those. Oh, Um, wow. Evolved for fishes that had them, but it's just like they came up with like a weapon system that was just at a different level. Um, Being able to put out several hundred volts of electricity you don't need to invest resources in developing bony spines and venom associated with them. You've got a much more powerful weapon. So I think that would be something that uh, would make it kind of an interesting Pokemon to start off with. What it would transform into would be interesting. I don't know where I'd go in that direction, but at least for something that, and it kind of looks, you know, in general, most of the Pokemon, at least the original forms tend to look very kind of, soft and they have rounded edges and kind of cute there's a there's definitely a cuteness factor that i think that um the electric catfishes have as well i agree i like that a lot the um the one the one thing that i will add which i'm going to assume you would be excited for is lucas uh has been saying for a long time that he thinks that an eventual region in the game because all the regions are inspired by different parts of the world the the most recent most recent generation uh, is tied to the United Kingdom. Lucas has been saying for a long time that he thinks that a Brazil-inspired location is coming. And so what I was going to ask you is, uh, so you said there was the South American banjo catfish. Yep. Uh, Is the banjo catfish in Brazil? Yes. There are are many species. 
So, so reasonably, one of the things that they've been doing is taking old Pokemon and doing variations of them based on region. So they have different regional looks. So, and that they change the types and all that. But what they could do is if we do get a Brazil one in the future, they could make a regional version of Whizcash and they could make it look like a banjo cash. Hmm, that'd be neat. And then it could be sound based, just like uh, Primarina Don. Hmm. Ooh, that'd be cool. I would like that. We get a little, li- little liquid voice. It also opens up the possibility of the Kandaroo. Because uh, again, they're they're also widespread. Oh no! We could. Uh, I think that would have an immediate interest. Yeah. I will skip. I will skip <laughs> that generation. <laughs> no, thank you. All right. On that note, let's let's jump to the wrap up. So, uh, John, again, we really want to thank you for your time. This has been a great discussion. I have learned a lot. Uh, one bit that I wanted to to make sure that our listeners heard, uh, because you you said it so well when we were talking before we started recording, um, but if you could just touch on your interest in the crossover between science and and uh, pop culture and 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 mythos and games and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, like I said, I'm I come at this as a scientist who has always been fascinated with fishes, uh, but as I learned about fishes, I keep seeing fishes in in culture, in, in, in art that people produce, whether it's historical artwork going back to hieroglyphs in Egypt, uh, in ancient Asian art, um, all kinds of Native American artifacts. And what I've noticed is it continues to today. So we have now fish-themed comic book characters. Uh, fish appear in movies. Uh, fish appear in comic books, uh, Pokemon, Animal Crossings. It, it really fascinates me. I just see it as a great opportunity to get uh, interactions with people. I can share my knowledge of fishes with people that have knowledge about these other forms of art. And uh, this is a perfect example with your podcast. So I love that. I've learned a lot about Pokemon. Hopefully you've learned something about fishes. And I think that's a win-win for everybody. I I definitely have, have learned something. Some things I wish I could unlearn, like the kangaroo. <laughs> Never unlearn it. Uh, so, uh, but on that note, John, again, thank you very much. Uh, if any of our listeners want to Connect with you uh, or learn more about you. Do you have social media? Yeah, the, I'm on several platforms, but I'm most active on Twitter. And it's just at Friel, at F-R-I-E-L is my Twitter handle. And I I post all kinds of fish stuff. I, I love fish memes, fish art, fish puns, and just basic kind of fish facts. So I'm the kind of person who I love looking at um, pictures of fish and I try to identify them. People send me pictures to identify so um, if you like fish, give me a follow. Yes, I, I'd say if you like fish, if you have any fish related questions, hit him up. He is highly knowledgeable. I've learned so much in just this brief time that I've talked with him. So again, John, thank you very much. Uh, Don, and I really appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, this has been a wonderful time. Oh, this has been great. Uh, Feelings mutual. Yeah. So on that note, uh, to you listeners, thank you very much for continuing to support the show. Uh, we appreciate you giving your time to us. So uh, on that note, thank you. Have a good day.